Ruth chapter 4, beginning at verse 13. So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife. And he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord, who has not left you this day without a Redeemer. And may his name be renowned in Israel. He shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him. Then Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse. And the women of the neighborhood gave him a name, saying, A son has been born to Naomi. They named him Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. This concludes our Old Covenant reading, and let us now turn to Acts 2, verses 29 through 36, for our New Covenant reading this morning. This is to be found on page 910 in your pew Bibles. Acts chapter 2, beginning now at verse 29. Peter speaking at the day of Pentecost, saying, Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried, and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet, and knowing that God had sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption." This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, He has poured out this that you yourself are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into heaven, but he himself said, says, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus, whom you crucified. Let us ask for the Lord's blessing upon his word. Our Heavenly Father, We stand bare before you, Lord. We we are open books to you. You know our hearts. You know our longings. You know our struggles. You know our dangers, Father God. You know what we are prone to do. You know our weaknesses. Everything that we are is known to you. And Lord, so we pray as we open your word to study it and to learn about who you are and what it means to belong and submit to you, we ask that that message would be one that restores us, that 
gives us strength, Father God, to respond with gratefulness, with thankfulness as we receive your grace, and to be strengthened and invigorated as your witnesses into this world. And so we pray that your Holy Spirit would work all this. In the mighty name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Here's a very simple proposition. We all want happiness. This is illustrated throughout our culture and history with countless fairy tale uh, love stories, both in books and movies, stories that end with something like this, and they lived happily ever after. That is one of the uh, pointers to the fact that we all crave happiness. In fact, our, our culture, our cu- cultural moment right here and now is saturated with this deep, deep desire of self-fulfillment, of achieving happiness for ourselves. The idea of being happy, of a fulfilled and peaceful life resonates with each one of us deeply. And as we look at the book of Ruth as a whole, it is a story, a happy story par excellence. A narrative of happiness according to God himself. An old Hebrew widow sees her family line restored through a relative and a foreigner, a young Gentile widow finds her fortunes restored through the kindness and love of a Hebrew. And a Hebrew man finds a godly and faithful wife in an immigrant widow. Yet, while we very much like this idea of a happy ending, of a happy life that we find in Ruth, especially at the ending of this book, What, humanly speaking, we might find much desire to be desired is how the story begins and how the story develops. If you remember, Ruth chapter 1 is marked by death, by loss, by sorrow. Ruth chapters 2 and 3 have moments of severe uncertainty, steps, if not leaps, of faith required from the main characters. And so we might very much like the destination but not so much the journey. But even more broadly, what we have before us is the fact that we like happiness, but we prefer it on our own terms. For some of us, and our culture at large, this means determining our own moral codes, our own sexual norms or identity. For others, it is being liked and accepted by people, yet for some it is to be in control of their career, while for others to find a perfect spouse. You can go on and on and on. This is an endless list. And the fact is that the issue is not with our desire for happiness and fulfillment, but it is our need to define the way we become happy and define the way we continue to be happy. The question really fundamentally is, on whose terms will we find satisfaction? On ours or in God's? And then in that sense, the book of Ruth presents a beautiful challenge to us today. It shows us a way to be happy, to be truly happy, but on someone else's terms. It shows a model for good life by God's standards, and it absolutely confronts our understanding of happiness. Yet it does so in such a way that if we listen, 
If we need attention, we might just end up far, far happier. In which case, our passage today is very fitting. It gives us three major reasons why it is far better to be ruled by God, to submit to His idea of what a happy life is, rather than that of our own. We find three surprising elements, aspects in this text. And those provide for us three points and those three reasons why God's rule is better than ours. And these are a reviving providence, a loving people, and a redeeming king. And so we begin first by looking at a reviving providence. One of the main themes of the book of Ruth is God's providence. In contrast, however, to Genesis through Judges, God, on the surface, seems strangely absent in this book. His name comes up in the lips of the characters of the book, but the book itself is void of prophecies, of divine divine appearances, of miracles. God rather works, as it were, secretly, through the kindness and love of His people, in His provision of favorable weather conditions and harvest, even through seemingly painful experiences. And yet, as we come to chapter 4, and especially to this, the ending of the book, something absolutely remarkable happens. In verses 13 and 14, the Lord, having performed in the shadows up to this point, as it were, steps into the light of the narrative. In two consecutive verses, he is identified as a clear and unmistakable cause of something. Let, us, let me read those verses to us. It says, So Boaz took Ruth, and she became his wife, and he went into her, and the Lord gave her conception, and she bore a son. Then the women said to Naomi, Blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a Redeemer, and may His name be renowned in Israel. Why? Why in the book where God so far has worked through means, through the, uh, the kindness and love of His people, through His control over nature. Why in such a book is it suddenly clearly stated that the Lord gave Ruth conception, and the Lord was the one who did not leave Naomi without a Redeemer? Here's why. This is the moment of resolution in this book. It is the time when God unveils His providence, a time when He reveals that it was Him all along. When Elimelech, Naomi's husband, with his wife Naomi and their two sons, left Judah in chapter 1 for Moab in search of a better living, when Naomi lost her husband and sons in this foreign land, and when she returned to Bethlehem in Judah, and when on her way back, her, Ruth, her daughter-in-law, pledged and swore allegiance to her, and her God, when the same daughter-in-law went out into the fields to gather grain to provide for herself and her mother-in-law, later when Boaz, a relative of Naomi's late husband, met Ruth and took care of her, when Ruth obeyed Naomi and went out to, to propose to Boaz by night, and when Boaz promised Ruth a granting of her request and then fulfilled it in the eyes of his townspeople, when all that happened, it was all the Lord's doing all along. From the very beginning, it was God working out His redemptive plan through the hands of His people. 
while an unsuspecting reader of the book could say, well, wasn't that simply the goodness and kindness of, kindness of, of people like Ruth and Boaz that drove the narrative forward? Why does it have to be God? Here's why. He takes one thing that neither Ruth nor Naomi could do for themselves, provide an offspring. Naomi's sons had died in chapter 1, as you might remember, and Ruth was very likely unable to conceive. This could be implied for the fact that she lived with her husband for 10 years without having children. So the Lord takes one thing that no amount of human kindness and love could achieve and makes it happen. He gives Ruth a child as if saying, look, it was me all along using my people as instruments and to prove it beyond, doubt, beyond a shadow of a doubt, I will do one thing that depends on me and me alone. He unveils his sovereign providence. Every good thing in this story came from God. He was in control all along. Now you might be asking, well, how is that a good thing? How is this not a controlling God, not a despot-like uh, God, not a God who gives no freedom, who likes and enjoys to move his creatures as pawns on the board. How is this not like that? And the answer is, it isn't. And here are two reasons. One, which is formed in a, a, by way of asking a question that's been asked very many times. Is God sovereign or do we have a choice? And the answer, of course, is Yes. Both are true in the Bible. Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 3, says, God from all eternity, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordained everything that ever happens. So here's God's sovereignty, yet in such a way that God is not the author of sin, nor is violence done to the will of the creatures. So God uses human choices to achieve his purposes while preserving the very freedom of humanity. It is a mystery, but one worthy of an all-powerful, all-eternal, and all-knowing God. The second reason comes more directly from our text. The reason why God's sovereign providence is a good thing. And it has to do with his, the purpose and the end of that sovereignty for his people. And now we look at what God's providence achieves for Naomi. Look at verse 14 with me again. What do the women say? He shall be to you a restorer of life. In chapter 1, Naomi's story begins with death. She loses her husband, and ten years later, her sons, her family name will end with her. Naomi herself echoes this notion in Ruth 1.21 when she says, I went away full, meaning I had all that my heart desired, in terms of family, and then the Lord has brought me back empty. In that culture of familial relationships, she was literally as good as dead. Having no husband, being old and unable to work, with the years of childbearing long gone. And yet, remarkably, as we come to chapter 4, the end of this book, Naomi has an offspring. God restores her life. Brothers and sisters, that is always the purpose and the end of God's providence for his people. For Naomi, it was physical. For us, it is spiritual. 
Christian faith, of course, is marked by one's going from death to life. But the radical counterintuitive point of Ruth is that this restoration of life does not happen how we might expect. It comes through hardship and suffering that just seem unnecessary to us. Why couldn't Elimelech and Ruth's sons just have children? That would have eliminated any need for the painful return to Israel, for all the events that followed, for sorrow and uncertainty. But that's a little bit like asking this question that's often asked of uh, the, the Lord of the Rings books and movies. People often ask, well, why couldn't the eagles simply have taken Frodo and the ring into Mordor? Why all the traveling across those lands? Why risking these lives? While, why all the adventure when all that could have happened is those birds take them there, throw in the ring, and be done? Well, what this question ignores, of course, is the nuance and complexity of that world, the sentience of the eagles, their relationship with the wizard Gandalf, who calls them the sheer danger of massive birds flying openly into an enemy territory and it's somewhat similar to how God's providence is. You know, very likely Elimelech and Naomi's leaving their land for Moab was a part of a larger spiritual reality of this family turning away from God. Seeing their family line continue then successfully in Moab would have further eliminated the need for God in their happiness, and especially in Naomi's mind. Her confidence in her heritage, her family, would have grown, leaving, con- leaving God further outside of her life. She would have achieved happiness as defined by her and her culture, yet God would not be in the picture. And you see, if God of the Bible exists, and if He made people who reach their fullest potential in communion with Him, then anything that excludes Him as a failed substitute. A substitute that cannot carry the load of our expectations and longings for a relationship with a true and living God. And so, by chapter 4, Naomi is happy. She is content. Her life has been restored, yet not on her own terms, but on God's. Her happiness is different, though. Richer than she could ever have had on her own. Now she, of course, she also has an heir, but she has a much deeper and richer relationship with her daughter-in-law. Most importantly, however, she has come to know and trust God like never before. Her faith has been restored. Her view of God has changed. She is able to praise and enjoy Him. Her relationship with God is marked by loving trust, not animosity that we observe to an extent in chapter 1. But it all came through hardship and suffering, through surrendering her idea of what it means to be happy. Friends, our self-rule brings death. God's rule restores life. A second reason why God's rule is better than ours is because He gives us a new and better community. This touches on the second major theme of God, that God's providence works through the faithfulness and obedience of His people. 
The women of the city make an astonishing, almost scandalous statement for their time. In verse 15 they say, For your daughter-in-law who loves you, who is more to you than seven sons, has given birth to him, that is to the offspring. What is the point they're making? Well, to understand it, we must understand the meaning of family in those times. Seven sons essentially meant a perfection of a family. The number being a symbol of that perfection. And one pastor rightly observed that while today more children means more mouths to feed, back then more children, especially more sons, meant more workforce and more security. Having more sons increased one's chances of producing more and making a better living. It also increased dramatically one's chances of having one's family name continue beyond just one's own lifetime. And sons were thus by and large preferred over daughters. And so the words of the women mark the highest praise of Ruth. She's better to you than a perfect family. But that naturally raises a question, what did she do? What did she give Naomi that her sons could not have? They certainly could, in God's will, have provided her with an offspring or even more than one. And they certainly could have given her care and provision in her old age. So how does then a Moabite widow exceed the blessing many sons could bring? The answer lies in the words that these women say, because she loved you. Throughout the book, you see, the author often uses God's name, Yahweh. A name that speaks of His loving kindness, His covenant faithfulness for His people. His boundless, self-giving loyalty to them. And Ruth is a child of her God. Ruth 1, 16, 17, records her pledge of loyalty to Naomi, culminating with these very words, Your people shall be my people, and your God my God. These words testify to Ruth's faith. In the rest of the book, her works testify to it too. And as such, as, as a child of her covenant God, covenant Lord, she demonstrates her love to Naomi throughout the book, by her own costly commitment to her. She followed Naomi into a foreign uh, country, leaving everything she knew and valued behind. She crossed boundaries of race and culture. She risked her life to gather food for Naomi. She risked her reputation at the threshing floor in obedience to Naomi. Ruth's love for God made her a precious instrument in God's hands, in the hands of her heavenly, Heavenly Father. God's rule means we get to be these instruments. We get to be instruments of redemption in one another's hands, in one another's lives. By contrast, what happens in relationships without without God? Well, several things. If we dictate the terms of our happiness, we will end up in tribes filled with a sense of superiority towards others. And that's exactly what we see in our culture today. If we dictate the terms of our happiness, we will have unrealistic expectations towards others, especially those who we care for. Family, for example, a wonderful God-given gift, if made into an ultimate virtue, will put too much and too great of a pressure on our loved ones for an expectation that only God can meet. Also, if we dictate the terms of our happiness, our relationship will ultimately be about us. 
serving our needs, meeting our idea of happiness. In other words, under our own rule, the lines we draw in our relationships will most likely coincide with party lines, with bloodlines, with national lines, and we inevitably will face disappointment. God's rule, by contrast, means that we get to serve each other sacrificially, with enjoyment, even at the great personal cost. Why? Because of grace, care, love, and service received from the Lord. Recall that Ruth had no leverage in Israel, no social status, no intrinsic self-built worth. All she possessed was the faithfulness of her Lord, and that is what she gave to Naomi. You see, because our Lord cared for us and loved us, we can care and love others truly and sacrificially and selflessly. We can do so also because, not because others are valuable to us in some way, not because they are related to us in some way, not because we agree on everything with them, but simply because they belong to the same Lord and King. Our rule divides and fractures and alienates us. God's rule, God's definition of happiness gives us a new and better family. Lastly, submission to God's rule, to His definition of happiness is best to us because He gives us a redeeming king. We've seen that our text is filled with surprising statements And there's one more. Let's read the end of verse 17 and following. The name, they named him the child Obed. He was the father of Jesse, the father of David. Now these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Here's the unexpected twist. Here's how this seemingly isolated book of the Bible connects to God's redemptive story. Obed is is David's grandfather. To the, the original Jewish audience, which was likely at the days of David... This achieved two things. First, it validated David's kingship by tracing his ancestry back to Judah through Perez. And second, it connected the royalty, the idea of royalty, with a redeemer, thus revealing the nature of Israel's true king. The women of the city named the child Obed, which means a servant, a name that perfectly matches the earlier description of this child in verse 15. They say, he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age. And this coincides with a third major aspect of this book, the theme of redemption. In verse 14, we have a word, redeemer, goel in Hebrew, meaning a kinsman who steps in to keep the name of a diseased relative, in this case, Elimelech, alive, by providing him a son, an offspring, 
and also a kinsman who keeps the land that belonged to the deceased within the family. And the obvious redeemer of the book of, of Ruth is Boaz, who at a great personal cost in chapter 3 volunteers to redeem Elimelech's land property and to marry Ruth in order to provide an offspring for one of Elimelech's sons. And Obed, Obed is that offspring, that son. The Bible says he will be a son to Naomi and serve her in her old age. In other words, what the women of the town are saying is, Naomi, you will live happily ever after. Yet remarkably, they also say the following. Speaking of Obed, they say, May his name be renowned in Israel. Which is proven true just a few verses below. Living happily after after will surpass Naomi's own lifetime. Through Obed, through the love and kindness of Ruth and Boaz, Naomi becomes part of Israel's royal family, the family of David. This stands in in stark contrast to the end of the book of Judges. You might remember that the book ends with a refrain that there was no king in the land and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And it brought havoc, destruction. The country, the nation was going, spiraling downward. Coming to an end, coming to a crash. And yet by the end of this little book of Ruth, that is completely turned around. And there's hope that there is this king and that the Lord has not abandoned his people the way he cared for this family brings hope to the whole nation that God has not abandoned his people. And yet, for us today, there is even a a more truer ever after, a truly eternal ever after. The end of the books, the ending of the book of Ruth points us even beyond King David to the great king of Israel, the true king of Israel with a heart of a servant and the power to restore life forever. I believe Obed is the only child in the Bible for whom the word redeemer is used to describe. But there was another redeemer child And that is Jesus Christ. He gives us the ultimate reason why God's rule is the single best thing that can happen to us. It is the explanation of how God can welcome foreigners from enemy nations like this Moabite Ruth into his family. How he can transform those of his own who reject him like Israelite Naomi. How he can use suffering to bring about life. And how we can experience true and lasting happiness on someone else's terms. And all this is possible because at the center of God's reign stands a king who came not to be served, but to serve. On the cross, Christ restored life to unworthy sinners by losing his. On the cross, he gave us our new family in grafting our name in the family of God by being severed from his heavenly Father 
and coming under His wrath in our place. On the cross, Christ purchased true and lasting happiness for those who believe by Himself receiving the gravest of miseries. Now, what does that mean to us in light of our passage, in light of the whole book of Ruth? Well, for one, we see this servant king giving us happiness by reorienting our worship. You and I were made to glorify and enjoy God. That's Bible's idea of happiness. Which means that if we define what happiness is for us, we make something else, something created, its object. We expect some good area of our life to fulfill us that only God is meant to. There's countless examples of this. Friendships, if made God's gift, if made into an ultimate thing, will push people away, will leave us disappointed with what we receive from others. Family is good, as we've seen, but if we expect our relatives to give us the lasting fulfillment, we will burden them with unreasonable expectations. Work is good. It's an absolutely good gift of God. But if our career is the highest source of our happiness, we will alienate many on our way to the top. You can apply the same principle to any area of our lives. To truly be happy, to fully enjoy God's good gifts in life, the gifts that we just set before us as examples, we must find our ultimate happiness in Christ. And that comes in the form of submission each and every day. And friends, if you are not believers today, that, form of, that submission comes in the best form of loss, of surrender. Surrendering your own will, your idea of being righteous and good before a holy God, and admitting that there's only, way, there's an, there's only one way for you to be happy, for you to be restored, and for you to be pleasing in the sight of this heavenly God. And that is through faith and repentance, through faith in this Christ, through submission to this servant king. Second, the cross means that we can trust the servant king. His coming to earth not to abuse us, but to be abused on our behalf is a powerful testimony to God's goodness in the midst of suffering, hardship, loss, and uncertainty. When we can think of no other reason to submit, why we should submit to God rather than ourselves, brothers and sisters, let Christ, the servant king, stand as a firm reminder that the Lord always, always has your best interest in mind. If he was not willing to give up his own son for you, will, not, will he not give you everything else that your heart truly needs? Let Christ be the foundational principle, the lens through which you judge everything else that is taking place in your life. And may the Lord help us. Let's pray. A gracious God, 
we thank you. We thank you that we have hope in Christ. That we have a hope of, of a truly satisfied, happy life. Not as the world sees it, but as you see it. And we ask then that when things get really, really hard, when our circumstances, our doubts, our anxieties, our fears, Lord, seem to be choking us up, seem to be taking away every bit of air out of our lungs. The Father, when it's so dark that we cannot, we seem not to wrap our minds around the fact that you are good. It seems distant. It seems disconnected. Father God, in those moments, may you grant us to hold on to Christ. May you send your Spirit to remind us of the ultimate sacrifice, the ultimate price that he paid for us on the cross, us being unworthy for that. Father God, let that bring peace, comfort, and a taste of the hope that we have laid down for us in heaven. We pray that you would shape us to be Christ-centered, heavenly minded people of God. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.